right, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be... Yeah, we're going to be in the book of Mark tonight. Now, you see there that we're going to be um, we're actually, we're going to be in the, the last, uh, starting about in verse forty-two, and we're going to be talking about you know hell, but we're going to have to do a little bit before uh, we get there. Now, we all know all sports teams have these kinds of fans. And they're the kind of fans that get on the nerves of all the real fans. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. If you ask them their favorite team, they know what the, oh, I'm all whatever, fill in the blank, right? And if their team wins, they're all over social media bragging about it like they did something. You didn't do nothing. You ain't never done nothing. And then dogging other teams if those teams lose like they had something to do with it. They wear the gear. They talk the smack, right? But the truth is they rarely, if ever, watch a game. They surely have never been to a game, right? Unless the coach is famous, they probably can't even name the coach. And unless the quarterback is famous, they probably can't even name the quarterback, right? They probably can't. If they can name the quarterback, they can't name two or three players beyond that. They just know this is my team and I love my team and I ride, and die, ride or die with my team. I don't know who they are, but that's my team, right? These are the most, I just want you to, you are the most annoying kind of fans, but you live your best life now, as Joel Osteen would say. Okay, you just live like, it's fine to be that kind of fan, but it's very super, superficial kind of fandom because you don't get to suffer like I do being a Tennessee fan. It hurts when you're all in and you really care. But my point is this, many of us are doing the same thing with Jesus. We say that we love Jesus and we're a big fan, and we're on, you know, he's our favorite team. He's our savior. He's our Lord. And we love him. And we love what he loves. But when it comes right down to it, many times we don't really know who Jesus is. Not really. Or we don't really know that much about him. We don't spend, we don't really spend that much time with him. Maybe the 15 seconds it takes to share a Christian post on Facebook or Instagram, right? We spend little to no time with others who love him or talking about him who we love to other people. We spend no time standing up against those who hate him or reject him. And in fact, if somebody follows, followed us around for a week, they'd probably see other than coming to church and we're glad that you do that, they wouldn't really be able to tell much from our life that we're really all in on Jesus. In the second half of Mark's gospel, he's focused on answering this one question. Look at this next slide. Walk right here, I dare you. I'm going to get you. Amen. Don't come, Diane, turn around. Where are you going? Right there? You come any closer, mother-in-law, I'm going to get you. I ain't kidding. Mark focuses. Y'all seen the video, though, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Okay, okay. Is she coming? Where's she at? Oh, we got a chance. Mark spends the second half of his gospel asking this question. What does it look like to follow Jesus, right? Well, I mean, we know what it looks like to be a fan of the team, right? You wear the colors, you wear the shirt, you wear the team, you know, you brag about your team, all of those things. But what does it really look like to follow Jesus? In the gospel of Mark, 
And he gives us a description of what it's like to be a disciple. This is what a disciple of Jesus knows. This is what a disciple of Jesus does. This is how a follower of Jesus reacts in this situation. This is how a Christian is supposed to treat people, right? And there's these distinctive outward characteristics that point to an inward change that happened because of Christ. And Mark gives us clarity on these characteristics in the second half of this gospel. And so we're going to start tonight in verse number 42. And we got a long section we're going to read here. So look at Mark chapter 9, and I'm starting in verse 42. It says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands uh, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where, there, if you're, uh, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, what? Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, plug it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So what he gives us here, before we get to the subject of hell, what he's giving us here is kind of this description of faithful followers. What does a faithful follower of Jesus Christ do? Number one, write this down. We consider others. A faithful follower of Jesus Christ considers others and where they are leading other people. Look, at, look again at verse number 42 uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, this is a serious warning. Right. Anybody who's leading another believer away from holiness and away from obedience to God's word. He says here, the word he uses is scandalizo. Look at this next slide. In the Greek, that word is the same. It's where we get the word for scandalize. Have you heard of a scandal? And he says it's to bait or entice others into immoral or unethical behavior. It's luring others into sin and away from an intimate, obedient walk with Christ. So faithful followers of Jesus have a responsibility to make sure that's not what we're doing. That we're leading others away from Jesus, but rather that we're pointing people towards Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're asking right now, now, Pastor Marcus, isn't he just talking about kids here? He's talking about children. He said in that verse, he, he's talk, he says one of these little ones. So isn't he talking about children? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. He is literally talking about children and he's also using children to symbolize To symbolize exactly right, what it means to be a believer, to be a follower. So it's literal, but it's also symbolic. Like in other places where he says you have to believe like a child. Jesus wasn't saying you have to be a child. Only children can believe and follow me. He says you have to believe. Right? Faith like a little child to be saved. Here he's using again uh, the symbolism of a child talking about true, real believers. Now, again, the important phase in that verse is where he says, look, who believe in me? 
That's what he says. Look, these little children who believe in me. He's talking about believers. He's using a physical child as a symbol of a spiritual child. And he's blatantly saying that it is dangerous to lead one of God's children away from God and into sin of any kind. Now, how offensive, how, how dangerous is this? Look at verse 42. The last part of verse 42 says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A millstone would, uh, and that would weigh about 500 to 2,000 pounds, okay? So just go jump in the Tennessee River and see if you can swim with that. You can't, and it would be terrible. He's saying the most, it would be better to suffer the most horrifying, terrifying death that you can imagine than to lead one of God's children, one of his people, into sin. That's what he's saying. The seriousness of the crime can be gauged by the severity of the punishment. Right? And so if you do something wrong and you get a, you know, don't do that again. Or you get a slap on the wrist. That doesn't seem very, right? In other words, what you did wrong wasn't that bad because of the punishment wasn't severe. But if you do something bad and your, your mama just lays down thunder and lightning on your backside, that's a little bit more severe than, hey, don't do that again. So the seriousness of the crime here of leading God's people away from Jesus and into, into sin and other things, we can see how serious it is because Jesus says it'd be better to die the worst death that you can even imagine. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus say that? Write this down. When you mess with God's people, you mess with God. When you mess with God's people, you mess with God. And ultimately, when you mess with God's people, you're going to answer to God someday. And see, the God of heaven has bound himself inseparably to his people. You can't separate me from Jesus no matter how much you want to. And neither can I separate you. You cannot separate God from his people. When you mess with the holiness and the righteousness of God, you're messing, or with people, you're messing with the holiness and righteousness of God. It's impossible. Look at John 13, 20 there in your notes. It says, most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. This is Jesus talking. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, there's this unbroken chain here. You mess with God's people, you're messing with God. You remember when Saul was persecuting the church before he became the apostle Paul? He's murdering and he's out to get and he wants to take out every Christian. What did Jesus say to him? Look at it in your notes. Acts chapter 9 verse 4 says, talking about Saul says, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people, my children, my church? No, 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 no. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you mess with Jesus' people, you're messing with Jesus. God says, when you touch my people, you're touching me. When you hurt my people, you're hurting me. When you mess with my people, you're messing with me. And you would rather tie a 2,000-pound millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean than mess with me. That's what he's saying. This is a, a, an amazing divine warning from God. It's actually a blessing. We're a family of God and family takes care of each other. If you don't believe me after the service, just go knock Amber over and see what happens. Because when you're messing with Amber baby, you're messing with daddy baby. Right? But you ain't got to be worried about that. When you mess with Amber baby, you mess with daddy baby, you mess with mama baby. Amen? She's crazy. All seriousness, family takes care of each other, right? And when you mess with God's people, 
ultimately God is who you're going to answer to for. He's going to take care of his people. So this is a divine warning for us and we need to take it seriously. And so how do we examine ourselves? Look at this next slide. Ask yourself, are you by action or attitude leading someone away from pursuing Christ, loving Christ or obeying Christ? Like, is that you? Are you leading people away from God or to God? Look at this next slide. I mean, basically, are you causing or leading someone else to sin? Sexual sin, financial sin, relational sin, spiritual sin. Let's zero in a little bit. Look at this next slide. Parents, are you living a life that your kids see that you know is leading them away from obeying Christ and his word? See, guys, when you see that, if there's a conviction in your heart, you know what? There's this thing and I need and, I, and you've been guilty of any of these things. Again, I want to point out the severity of the punishment. It would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and to jump in the sea than to do this. What you need to do is simply come before your Savior and say, Jesus, forgive me. Right? Forgive me because forgiveness is there for the offering because the consequences are real and severe. Cast yourself at the feet of Jesus and he's going to forgive you. Next, write this down. Faithful follower of Jesus also combat their own sin. So it's not just, I don't want to lead anybody else into sin, but also we fight our own sin and our own tendency to sin. And it's a daily battle. Amen? Oh, hypocrites all up in here. All right, look at verse number 43. Look at verse 43. It says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, let's just kind of deal with this. Now, we've read it twice. Let's kind of deal with this. Kind of, it's pretty vivid and violent, isn't it? I mean, can we just be honest for a minute? If this was a movie, some of you wouldn't let your kids watch it. Right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's pretty vivid. Now, if Jesus meant this to be taken literally, some of us got some cutting and plucking left to do. Amen? But he's not literal here, is it? I mean, it's not meant to be taken literally. Jesus doesn't intend for anybody to take it literally. Look at that. Jesus is using hyperbole. Look at this next slide. Hyperbole is exaggeration for the point of emphasis. It's to exaggerate in a, in, a, in a way to emphasize something. It's like if your mama and daddy said, if you don't quit that, I'm going to skin you alive. Did your parents ever say that to you? If you had good parents, probably, right? And if they didn't, that's what's wrong with this generation. Parents not threatening to skin them alive, amen? But listen, if you don't quit, your mom says, y'all don't quit that. Y'all get in here. I'm going to skin you alive. Now, is she really going to skin? No matter what you thought when you were 10, was she really going to skin you alive? She was exaggerating for the point of, to make a point, to make you understand that this is serious and I mean business. When Jesus here is saying, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye, he's exaggerating to let you know that he means 
business. It's exaggeration for the purpose of emphasis so that you understand how serious this is and you need to get it right. Your mom was warning you that you would hate the consequences more than you're enjoying what you're doing. And she's warning you, you're going to hate the consequences more than you're enjoying what you're doing. And she's warning you because she loves you and she cares about you. And so what Jesus is teaching his disciples, well, look at this next slide, is that a saving faith is a sin-fighting faith. People saved by faith in Christ engage in a lifelong battle against sin. It never ends. I don't care how bald we go or how white our hair gets. I'm sorry, I just pointed at some of my white-haired brothers. <laughs> how, how white, bald, some others are white and bald. It doesn't matter. There's no age where sin no longer becomes a problem or is a concern. A saving faith is a sin-fighting faith. One of the evidence that we belong to Christ is that we can see what we love and what we hate. And we should hate our sin and we should love the things of God. What we fight for and what we fight against. Followers of Jesus Christ should fight for holiness and fight against sin in our lives. This internal fight is going to last all of your life. It never ends and you will have this fight. Now, even though as a Christ follower, you should hate your sin, you should combat your sin for the rest of your life, you're still going to struggle with it. Why? Well, this thing called a sin nature. And in scripture, it teaches us four things about our sin, our sinful nature. The A, the first one is this, circle this in your notes, is the fact that you inherited it. You got it honestly, right? Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Sin entered the world because of Adam. Sin corrupted Adam's nature. And because you, the great, 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 great grandbabies of Adam, you have a corrupted sin nature as well. Every one of us were sinners by birth, were sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice. And we're sinners by experience. Right? We have this sinful nature. We inherited it. It's part of our DNA. Now, B, write this down. But only Jesus can change it. Oh, you can't do it on your own. Only Jesus can change and work. What can wash away my sin? Hey, Scott, sing it for us. <laughs> and he's right, though, right? What can we, don't clap for him. I'm so tired of y'all. It wasn't a joke. You only clap for his jokes. Amen. But listen to me, only Jesus can wash away our sin, but only Jesus can work in our heart and our life, right? Look at Galatians 5, 24, it says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at this next slide. Our sinful nature is the root cause of our sin. Your nature is the root cause of your sin. Even if we cut off your hands, even if we cut off your feet, even if we pluck out an eye, you're still going to be a sinner. You're still going to sin because you still have your sin nature. If a man is using his eyes to look at pornography and he goes, this is bad, this is sin. So I'm going to pluck out my eyes so I could never look at pornography again. If a man does that, even blind men lust. He, he's fixed the, the, the immediate cause. My eyes are causing, I'm looking at pornography. So I, I will never look at pornography again. That's the immediate cause. But the root cause is the sin nature. And plucking out your eyeballs would do nothing to remove your sin nature. Even blind men struggle with lust. So if you cut off your legs and you cut off your arms and you cut off your 
you, ears and you take out your eyes, you will still sin because you have a sinful heart. You have a sin nature. Only Jesus can change that. Only Christ, no matter no amount of amputation, no amount of self-work and self-help and self-talk is ever going to do anything to impact your sinful nature other than Christ. Because here's the thing, while God forgives all of our sin, and when you receive Christ, he forgave you for everything, past, present, and future, right? When we place our, our faith and trust with him, look at this next slide. God doesn't take away our ability to sin, but he does give us the ability not to sin. You don't have to. You don't have to. Now, are you going to struggle? Are you going to fight? I hope so. That's what being a believer is, is leaning in on Christ, trusting his power, his transformative work in our life, and tapping into that resource, that down payment that he's given us of this spiritual inheritance, the Holy Spirit, and, you, and trusting him to help us and to deliver us. He did not take away our ability to sin, but he's also given us the ability not to sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to struggle. You're going to fight. But Jesus is the only answer. Now next, write this down, adding on to that. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers me. The Holy Spirit. Can't do it on my own. Look in your notes at Romans chapter 8 verse 5. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The Holy Spirit empowers us to have victory over sin. I mean, through God's word, through spending time with God's people, spending time in prayer, he empowers us. Now, the good news finally is this. Write this down. In heaven, I am free. I am free. I started to get you to sing that song. I am free, but I'm not going to do that. But listen. In heaven, finally, you know, we've been talking about it for weeks, right? When I get saved, that salvation, as I walk with Christ and I grow in my relationship with Christ. In the Bible, that's that theological word called sanctification. And then someday, uh, when I go to be with Jesus forever in heaven, it's glorification. And I'll be completely glorified. What does that mean? I'll be like him. And I won't have my sin nature anymore. I won't have those uh, temptations and those doubts and all those things. I will be free. Why? Because who the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. In heaven, we're going to be completely free from sin. Isn't that good news? Now, but Jesus is teaching us in Mark chapter 9, Though that it would be better for you to live the rest of your life with one hand, one foot, one eye, than to not repent and turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ to save you, right? Don't clutch your sin and go to hell. Trust Jesus. Now, lastly, faithful followers of Jesus, number three, here we go. Confess the reality of hell. Confess the reality of hell. Uh, I don't, that's going to be personal opinion here. Uh, I don't think anybody who doesn't believe in hell is saved. Jesus doesn't teach this because he's concerned that his disciples are going to go to hell. Um, Jesus' message became their message, and their message is now our message, right? Uh, but look at verse 43 again. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Now the word help that he uses here in our text is the word uh, Gehenna. Gehenna. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, the he Hebrew phrase for the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is where that wicked uh, King Ahaz worshipped Molech. The fire god, and he would sacrifice his children through fire. They passed through the flame. It was a, a terrible, terrible place. And later, there was this godly king named Josiah. And Josiah knocked down all the altars and all the temples. And he just burned it all up and made it a giant dump. And that's what it was in Jesus' day. It was a giant dump where the, you know, everything was just being burned all the time. I mean, it's the worst, most disgusting place that you could imagine. A Jewish person in Jesus' day could not imagine a worse place than Gehenna, right? And that's what Jesus, the word that Jesus is using here. And, and so Jesus is using the worst place on earth to describe the worst place in eternity. Does that make sense? He's using the worst place on earth to describe the worst place in eternity. And Jesus, in the Gospels, repeatedly taught three things about hell. Write this down. The first one is that hell is a real place. It's a very real place. It'll have a very real location. It's not a figment of your imagination. It's not a state of being. It's a reality where people will be. He said it's better to cut off your hands than to go to hell. It's a real place. Next, write this down. Jesus taught that it was a personal punishment. You're not going to go to hell for my sins, and I'm not going to hell for your sins. I'm going to tell you what. I'm not going to hell for my sins because I've trusted Christ. But if you go to hell... It's going to be because of your sins and nobody else's, yours. Look at verse 44. And, and I always have a hard time saying this. I promise you this week is the first time I notice this. This verse says where whose worm? Their worm does not. I, if you ask me to quote this verse, I would say where the worm. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But when I was studying this this week, I realized, oh, that's not the worm. That's their worm. Whose worm? The person going to hell. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place of personal, personal judgment. Next, Jesus also taught, write this down, that it was eternal. It's an eternal punishment. Again, look at verse 44. He says, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, right? And so it lasts. It never goes out. It never stops. And it's never ending. Say what you want to about Jesus. Jesus believed in the reality of a place called Hell. Look at this next slide. If hell is not real, then Jesus Christ is bogus. If hell isn't real, then Jesus Christ is a liar. I mean, what kind of sick person would even uh, dream up this kind of place, right? If hell isn't real, then Jesus Christ is not who he said he'd be. He's a liar. He's not a good man, not a righteous teacher, certainly not God in the flesh. If you can't believe what Jesus said about hell, you can't believe John 3.16 either. Because he talks about both in the same book. They go together. Right? If Jesus is God, if Jesus is the creator of the world, if Jesus did come to die for sinful men and sinful women, if he did, and he told us about this place called hell, you need to pay attention, man, to what he said. Because it's so obvious when you read this, it's so serious, isn't it? Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out. It is so serious. And he's given this dire, divine Warning, pay attention to what he said. Jesus said, hell is real, hell is terrible, and you don't want to go. 
And if we do not hate our sin enough to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus, hell will be a reality in our life. God mentions no words. If you trivialize your sin, minimize your sin, rationalize your sin, ignore your sin, and eventually refuse to repent and turn from your sin and trust Christ to save you, you deserve to go to hell. That's what God's word says. Not me, God's word. And you will receive hell forever. Look at this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. It says, which is manifest evidence. Now, could you imagine anybody reading these verses that we're reading tonight and them yet refusing to return from their sin and trust Christ? You know, it's like when, you know, we, we'll have, you know, this Easter we'll have over 800 people. And it just, it's scary. And I've talked to you guys about this before. It scares me to death, man. That people come to church, Christmas and Easter, I'm CEO, you know. And that people will come for Easter service and we're going to chunk a bunch of eggs out of a helicopter. And that's going to be fun. And, and, uh, but that people are going to come for Easter and they're going to sing songs of damnation, their damnation, right? When we sing those songs, those songs of victory of what we have in Jesus. And the reality is they're singing the very songs with the very lyrics that are powerful enough to save their very soul if they would listen and turn from their sin. But then they show up Christmas and they show up Easter and they dress up and they sing and they go home unchanged and someday they're going to go to this very real place called hell. And Jesus has done everything that he could possibly do to keep them from going there. But they're going to sing songs of their own damnation. Listen to this verse. He says, verse 5, he said, which is manifest evidence, evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. He's saying, listen, you're a believer. You've trusted Christ. You suffer, but God sees it. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. What did we say in the beginning? When you mess with God's people, you mess with God. Here's what he's saying. He says, it's the righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Look at Jude 7. It says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example for those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. What is hell? Look at this next slide. Hell is the place where unrepentant sinners spend eternity paying the penalty for their sins. They experience the full wrath of God for their sin. You ever heard a preacher preach about hell and he, he sounds like he's glad people are going there? That's not me. I don't want you to go, and I don't want anybody to go. It's not, a, it's not a fun place to send people. Have you ever told somebody they could go there? Right? I, I think I have. <laughs> In my house, we never say hell, or, or we might say Hades. And then one time I was kidding around with the kids. We just don't talk like that. And so I was kidding around with the kids. And I said, some guy cut me off in traffic. And I said, I said, that guy can go to, I get this from Scott and Saul to Paul. I said, that guy, I was mad. I said, that guy can go to H. And it was, the kids were little. And Amber said, oh. and I said, Humboldt. Humboldt. 
They could go straight to Humboldt and stay as far as all I care. I think if we knew the reality of hell, hell is reserved some people. And we understand the sinfulness and the wickedness of men. But most of the people that we would say, you know what, you can go. If we really recognize how bad it was, we would never wish that on almost anybody. Hell's the place where unrepentant sinners spend eternity, man, paying the penalty for their sin. Why did Jesus talk so much about hell? He didn't want nobody to go there. Why did he talk so much about hell? He didn't want anybody to go there. He wanted everyone to hear the good news, repent, turn for their sin, and trust Christ to save them and escape this horrible destination called hell. He wants people to know who saves them, what saves them, and how they're saved. Look at this next slide. The amazing thing is that God's mercy and his wrath meet at the cross. It's there on the cross that sin is atoned for and paid for. I mean, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because it was the only way. It was the only way that me and you could stay out of hell. That was it. There was no plan B. There was no other option. Only Christ could pay that price. Jesus had to take what was due us on himself when he hung on the cross. Jesus endured the equivalent of you spending an eternity in hell those few hours he was on the cross. He endured the equivalent of you and me and you and you and you and you and you and you and all who have placed their trust and faith in him. He endured the equivalent of us spending an eternity in hell on himself in those uh, few hours he was on the cross. He bore God's wrath. He bore God's punishment for our sin. Look at this next slide. This is Adrian Rogers. I love him. And uh, he used to say this, Jesus being eternal could do in a finite, right? A finite period of time, what you and I being mortal could only do and it couldn't do in an infinite amount of time. In other words, we could go to a place called hell for all of eternity and never really fully pay for our sins against a righteous God. But Jesus being God in the flesh, he could go to the cross and in a short period of time pay for the sins of all mankind because he's that good. But we're that bad. That's the difference. Look at this next slide. When Jesus died for our sins, he was experiencing all of our hell for us. He didn't go to hell. He's experiencing hell. Our punishment for our sin. And that's why we can be forgiven and set free. There's all kinds of good things uh, that Christians can and should do. Right? But if hell is real and Jesus says that it is. There's, look at this next slide. We have to tell people how to be forgiven of their sin and avoid spending eternity in a real place called hell. Because I don't know about you, but it does not ring my bell to think about untold people going to spend an eternity in a place called hell. It's not possible to say too much about Jesus. You can never talk too much about Jesus. But it is possible to talk too little about hell. Jesus talked about it, and he talked about it a lot. And he did it because he didn't want anybody to go. Jesus said it. We need to believe it. Hell is for real. You don't have to go. And also, you need to be praying for those that you know that are this close to busting hell wide open, that you can share the, God, the good news with them, and that God will answer your prayer and save them and redeem them and snatch them out of the fire as it will. Because hell is real. You know that song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Hell is real, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The bad news, 
The good news is we don't have to go. And praise Jesus, I'm not. Amen.